Welcome to the Layer 8 Podcast. This podcast is in conjunction with the Layer 8 Conference, which is happening for the third year on Saturday, June 6th, 2020 in Providence, Rhode Island. The Layer 8 Conference is the first one to solely focus on social engineering and open source intelligence, or OSINT gathering. Social engineers and OSINT investigators always seem to have a great story, and you can hear many of those stories through their presentations at the conference. But not every story can fill a whole presentation, and not all storytellers can get to the conference, which brings us here. This podcast will only be stories told by the investigators themselves. No interviews, no slides, just stories. Some might be as short as five minutes, some may even go for 45 minutes. I hope you'll enjoy them. For this episode, we welcome Alif Dennis, the founder of Dragonfly Security and the reigning champion of the DEF CON Social Engineering Capture the Flag competition. This is Alith's story of where she came from, how she was always a social engineer from childhood, and how the words from Lady Gaga turned her life around. She tells us how we can social engineer ourselves to move in a positive direction. Take it away, Alith. So I guess starting from the beginning, let's do somewhat of an origin story. Um, a lot of people now know, since I allowed my Twitter followers recently to dox me and um, use me as a volunteer target for a few OSINT challenges, that I was born in Johannesburg, South Africa. And um, my parents are American, but they immigrated there in the 70s. And um, my father took a job with um, a personal hygiene products company. Um, some people actually discovered my father's resume online and determined from my age what company he was working for, where they were based, and where I must have been born. So that was, that was pretty terrifying, <laughs> but um, also really cool uh, to see how people were able to go back into my parents' history and discover details about me, even though I think that I have um, some pretty good OPSEC. I mean, fairly okay. I'm not daring you, so don't go out there and try to tear me to shreds, but fairly decent. Um, your parents will always uh, allow you to be owned. So moving along, I was born and raised in Johannesburg, South Africa. We moved around South Africa for a while. Um, I lived in Durban, Port Elizabeth, and then back in Johannesburg. And some people were actually able to determine that, which was crazy, um, given that I was, you know, under the age of 10. Uh, around... Um, the late 1980s, my parents decided to split up and my mom came back to the US and my dad stayed in South Africa. And so I split time between the two households and um, I had one of my followers that was actually able to pretty roughly determine what country I was in before the age of 15, um, quite accurately. So that again was pretty scary, um, but, but neat to see. And uh, when I was in my very early preteens, I lived in Santa Cruz, which is just south of the, the Bay Area in California. And um, in Santa Cruz, my mom had gone back to school. So I lived on the University of California, um, Santa Cruz campus, and was surrounded by eight different colleges and a mess of college kids. And I attended an elementary school that was a short bus ride away from the family student housing that we lived in. And for the most part, my mom was like a really cool big sister. And so I had completely free range to do pretty much whatever I wanted. And, you know, within the like, <clears throat> excuse me, legal boundaries and whatnot. She, she didn't keep too tight of a rope on us. And uh, with, with the, the state and government programs that um, helped support us, I had a free bus pass. And so I was <clears throat> the oldest of three kids, um, a welfare kid, and a single parent family where the single parent was a student, didn't even have an income. So we had really not much. 
And so when people joke about dumpster diving, I mean, I actually did that. (laughs) And 90% of the stuff in my room came out of a dumpster, whether it was a piece of furniture that sat on the side or a clock radio. I found a black and white TV once that had the really cool rabbit ear antennas. And I set that up in my room and um, we were just fully immersed in the, the nineties technology at the time and trying to tear things apart and build them back together was something that completely infatuated me. So I think I tore apart clock radios and tried to put them back together, try to make them do stuff they weren't supposed to do. Um, we had a, a, an NES console that a neighbor kid had got for Christmas and we tore that thing apart and kind of got into some trouble over that. Um, but having the bus pass gave us pretty much access to the entire town. And so apart from going to school and coming home, my mom pretty much kicked us out of the house because it was a tiny apartment and, you know, three kids knocking around all day wasn't fun. So she would just be like, go outside and play. And we were like, okay, well, you can only roll a blade around the cul-de-sac for so long before you start to get into trouble. So we would take our bus passes, hop on the bus and go right around town. And a few friends of mine and I would um, go down to the downtown area in Santa Cruz and just like rain havoc on the stores. We were terrible. We were awful kids. It got to the point where the second we walked into a store, we would get followed around. (laughs) And uh, a high high level of shopping, shoplifting risk (laughs) was how they classified us. And... uh, my friends, they taught me how to shoplift and uh, they were all, you know, a grade or two older. And uh, we would shoplift small things like mm, ear piercing kits and <laughs> cosmetics, makeup, um, eyeliners, foundations, candy. And it was, it was pretty funny that all of this kind of flooded back to me as I was listening to um, a recent a podcast that had Tinker Sack on it, where he was talking about being a bad kid, essentially. And uh, it, it was, it was the, the thrill of the accomplishment, not so much the value of the item that drove this desire to do bad things. And it was, you know, 11 and 12 year old kids trying to find something to do on a Saturday afternoon. And it wasn't malicious or mean spirited, but we didn't have a lot. And so we didn't have money to buy these things, but it was also the, the challenge of trying to accomplish the goal of getting the stuff out of the store, even though we were being watched and they suspected that we were doing it. And they, um, they couldn't stop us till we left the store with the item. So what we would do is we would, you know, soft hand things and then put them back. And then we would get frisked and prove that we didn't do anything wrong. And then we would go back, put the same things back into our clothing, but then buy an item that was, you know, like a dollar candy bar or something like that. So it looked like we were being upstanding citizens and purchasing something, even though our pockets were like loaded down (laughs) with $20 worth of stuff, which was kind of a lot back in the nineties. We also would sneak into movies. And I think I shared this story on Twitter a while back. Um, But we, there were a few theaters. One of them, which is still around is called, um, I think it's still called the Nickelodeon. But anyway, we would send one person up to the ticket window and be like, oh man, I just got separated from my dad. I can't find him. He's somewhere downtown. Is it okay if I use your phone so I can call my mom to come pick me up? Because back then nobody had cell phones. And, um, you know, it was a payphone situation, but the payphone was inside the lobby of the movie theater. So the one person who got permission to use the phone would go into the lobby, leaving the other one outside, which made us look like we were, you know, doing this on the up and up. And the other person would go use the, mo- the payphone or pretend to at least, and then come back to the side door and let the other one in. And then we would sneak into whatever movie we wanted to see that day. And they knew damn right we were doing it. But I think they, I think the movie theater staff almost admired our, our bold, <laughs> our bold, um, you know, um, 
just rule breaking as it was. <clears throat> and just our complete uh, disobedience <laughs> for the expected behavior for movie theater. And so they just let us and we would sneak into these movies and the, and the Nickelodeon's a tiny theater. They do a lot of like art films and nothing like, you know, blockbuster movies or anything like that. Occasionally they would get Hollywood movies, but it was pretty rare. And uh, there was another movie theater down the street that did all of those. So um, we would be the only ones sitting in the theater. They knew darn right they didn't sell tickets to that movie. And so they would come in and just kind of like wave a flashlight at us <laughs> and leave. And that's how I saw uh, the Woody Allen film, uh, Mighty Aphrodite, at the age of 12, which is terrifying also in and of itself. <laughs> um, so, so after we would, you know, be done with the movie, we'd go out the side exit. We wouldn't go back through the lobby. And I think that that kind of, gave us this uh, thrill of having accomplished this great caper. And uh, we had bicycles, we would ride around uh, in close proximity to the college. And at the time, movie rentals and video stores were still a thing. So there was a 7-Eleven with a video movie rental place and a pizzeria like stacked into this little teeny shopping center um, that was directly across from our elementary school. And at the age of 10 or 11, I convinced the owner of the video store to give me, in my name, a movie rental account. And I would go in and rent VHS tapes, take them home, watch them, and then bring them back after school. And the guy, I remember standing at the counter, and the counter came to, like, my chin. And this guy was letting me walk out with his VHS tapes and trusted me to bring them back. So I was always a really um, reliable and a responsible kid. And being the oldest sibling, I think that that had a lot to do with it. Um, especially with my mom being at school all the time and us kind of being left to our own devices. It gave me all these opportunities to challenge the societal norms and the expectations of a kid and, um, break, not just like electronics and try to figure out how they work to put them back together, but break societal expectations of me as a kid. And I was tall. I mean, in fifth grade, I was five foot eight. And so most people were like, you're at least 16 or 17 when I was about 11 or 12. And it was just because of my height. I think also that people automatically associate height with either responsibility or um, confidence. People think that tall people are automatically confident and that is completely not true. Um, I was a chubby kid <laughs> and I was extremely self-conscious. Um, after after uh, sixth grade where I really became interested in computers and uh, my sixth grade teacher let us do a rocket model rocket building project. I like, I died the whole summer waiting to find out if I was going to be in that class because this was the only teacher who had this project and everyone knew if you were in this teacher's class, you got to build model rockets. And I was so down. Um, so I found out I was in that class and I almost lost it. Um, I was so excited. So we built the rockets. I still remember mine was named the Nova. And it, I still, I think they still sell that model, by the way. Um, you could put like a cricket or something into the rocket and launch it with your, there was like a little clear tube between the top and the bottom. Anyway, moving on. It was silver. It was amazing. And uh, after that year, I, um, I cut all my hair off. <laughs> and this was about the time I turned 12. And up until that point, I really hadn't given any thought to my appearance. Um, but at this time, I was like, you know, I look like a child. <laughs> I need to not look like a child anymore. So I cut all my hair off. And I had a really, really super short bob, like to my earlobes. And um, I went to seventh grade thinking I was tough shit. Excuse my French. I thought I was a total badass because I was coming out of sixth grade and I knew all the things and I was super confident. And then 
I got thrown into this junior high called Mission Hill in Santa Cruz. And there's only one junior high for the entire area. So all of the different schools get smashed together for these two years of just awkwardness. So you've got all of what we call the Brands of 40 kids, which are the kids from down near the boardwalk. And then you've got all of the, uh, you know, kids that go to the schools at the top of the hill in the suburban areas. We got lumped in with the suburban area kids because the college campus was right there, but we were total crapheads and <laughs> were not prepared for the level of craphead that was coming out of the other schools where these kids had infinitely more opportunities to um, push boundaries and um, break the rules and some of these kids were scary. I can remember being, you know, first or second day of seventh grade and I was completely naive and walking down a stairwell and these two kids were like making out in the stairwell and the girl had eyeliner on and I was just like terrified, completely mortified because I just had not been exposed to this world at all. And in that moment, I decided eyeliner was definitely a thing I wanted to get into. <laughs> so... After after a, a terrible year in seventh grade where this girl named Irene, Irene, if you're listening, I would like to find you and give you a piece of my mind to this day. During PE, this girl would stand on the side of the field and quack at me like a duck and flap her wings because she said that I ran like a duck. So yes, totally self-conscious chubby girl. And I had the wind completely knocked out of my sails in seventh grade. It was terrible. Um, by the end of the year, I decided that I was going to live with my dad. And so um, it was for eighth grade that I left the U.S. and I went back to South Africa. And I joined the year in the middle of the school year. Um, to say that my father's parenting style was the opposite of my mother's would be an understatement. Um, I got thrown into a co-ed but uniformed school. I had to start wearing a skirt and nylons. I wanted to jump off a cliff. And I was extremely uncomfortable in any clothing that would be even closely associated with uh, the female gender. Um, I'd always dressed like a tomboy. I had um, really done everything in my power to be the antithesis of a girly girl. Um, I wore black jeans and nine hole combat boots and olive green shirts. And I've had my hair tied back in a ponytail since I can remember um, after seventh grade, um, mainly because the schools in South Africa, you have to tie your hair up if it touches your collar. Um, but getting that complete and total sh like culture shock, South Africa is extremely different from the U.S., um, you know, there are, there are so many more people that are so much less fortunate than most people in this country have even the ability to comprehend. So walking around saying I was a welfare kid wasn't going to get me any sympathy there, just, you know, for the sake of comparison. Um, not that I did those things. My, my dad is, as most of you stalkers know, a college professor and, um, you know, we lived in a nice middle, middle class area and, um, I went to a very good school, but the adjustment of having my life micromanaged and, um, having boundaries actually only gave me more incentive to break them. <laughs> so I think I lasted two years at the co-ed school before I was moved to an all girls Catholic school. And I'll let you draw your own conclusions <laughs> as to why that happened. Um, I got into a lot of trouble at the, the co-ed school. I told a lot of lies. Um, there, Americans are like celebrities. And so if I said I was from California, people just immediately assumed that I knew Tupac and that I lived next door to movie stars and that, um, you know, all of these amazing things. And I became a complete and total narcissist. Um, I was obsessed with my self-image 
and um, just creating these elaborate stories because ultimately I just wanted people to like me. And after seventh grade, I was extremely insecure and um, had a really rough time making friends that were genuine. Um, so uh, after two years, I'd basically blown up every relationship I had at that school. And I moved to the all girls Catholic school, which was honestly the best thing that ever could have happened to me because it gave me a chance to adjust my um, persona and to reinvent myself for the third time in five years. And I learned a lot from that time there because I was able to focus on the things that I was really interested in. <clears throat> which were computer science, biology. Um, and I spent a lot of time in the computer room playing a game that I don't know if any of you will remember, but uh, Lord, <laughs> Legend of the Red Dragon. If you're familiar, um, you know, hit me up on Twitter and let me know because I feel like I'm the only person in the universe that remembers that game existed. And that's what really got me into coding. Um, it was trying to cheat that game that motivated me to learn how to code. And the first uh, language that I learned how to code in was uh, a fossil called Turbo Pascal. And um, that sucker was awful. And so we did, I mean, at the high school level, we were doing things like uh, writing code that would be uh, applicable for like an ATM machine. Nothing crazy just basic if then and logic and learning syntax and shit like that. Sorry, I swear a lot. <laughs> and a lot of stuff like that. There, you can edit it. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so uh, I really embraced the, the nerd in me and stopped really caring what people thought. I mean, I was in a school where we couldn't wear any other color of hairband other than black and navy blue. We weren't allowed to wear makeup. We had to wear our school uniforms. We had to have a name badge. We had to, you know, adhere to all these policies and it really removed the, the, the social tiering of the students, which was great for me because I was a super dork and I didn't have a lot of nice clothes. I didn't know how to dress. I didn't know how to be a girl. I didn't know how to wear makeup. I didn't know how to talk to girls. I was raised with brothers. And this really forced me to do that. So I had a core group of friends that I'm still in touch with a lot of them to this day. And um, after high school, I moved on to the University of Cape Town. And we moved from Johannesburg to Cape Town. And I started there. Um, working towards a degree in chemical and molecular biology with a minor in computer science. And I wasn't just accepted, but I received scholarships and bursaries to help me achieve that. And that would offset, um, you know, the cost of the degree as along with um, my father's affiliation with the college. And this was a huge fork in the road for me because about six months in, um, I became incredibly depressed. Uh, I was about 18 and I felt like my entire life was boxed in. And so I became really depressed and I started having major anxiety. I was under so much pressure to succeed um, through this degree program. And the fact that it was being paid for by all these other people, um, I really started to rebel. And so I became extremely self-destructive. Um, I wasn't doing drugs or anything like that, but I was ditching classes and I was, you know, acting out in ways that I felt that I could. And eventually this got um, back to my parents and um, I was also spending a lot of time in the computer room on MIRC chat and, um, I actually developed a stalker <laughs> and I, I, uh, I was so naive and so desperate for attention and male approval that I had, you know, a bunch of people that I talked to and this one guy, um, this is why I'm so passionate about the innocent lives foundation. So this is kind of a deep dive. 
um, trigger warning for anyone who has dealt with stalkers or uh, uncomfortable situations that involve grooming. This is your warning. Warning. Um, I had this guy who claimed that he was from Virginia and his name was Craig, but he went by the handle trip and we developed a friendship. And now in retrospect, I mean, this was almost 20 years ago. Oh yeah, this was almost 20 years ago. I, I know for a fact that, that this person was grooming me and that it did lead to some uncomfortable situations and I was lying and sneaking around and uh, being asked to do things I wasn't comfortable with, most of which I pushed back on. Um, but I really did end up in a really, really difficult situation. And it created a lot of problems with my, my uh, father and my stepmother and my siblings there in South Africa. And essentially what happened was, I blew up all my relationships there. I completely self-destructed. And uh, after this guy started mailing physical mail to my parents' home address, um, it was like time to move. So I moved from South Africa back to Northern California at that point to live with my mom. And I was now 19 and a complete disaster. Um, I was so stressed out that my entire scalp was just irritated. My skin was terrible. I weighed like 125 pounds and I'm almost six foot tall. Um, I was like sick with stress. And so when I arrived here, I was finally let out of my cage, so to speak. and also dealing with all these self-destructive tendencies. And the reason why I share this is because looking back now, I've completely uh, social engineered myself. And I'm gonna talk you through how I did that. Um, I took a minimum wage job, I started dating guys, I started getting tattoos and piercings and doing drugs, and all of this escalated over the course of you know, five or so years. Um, I got involved with a guy, we, you know, we're on again, off again, on again, off again, got married. <laughs> and then, um, his drug use escalated into methamphetamine and things would just got scary. I mean, it was like, I woke up one morning and realized that my entire life was on this track that I did not want it to be on. I was working a job doing uh, essentially OSINT professionally. Um, for a title and escrow company and I would do property research and I, I have always been a responsible person and very committed to, you know, showing up when I say I'm going to. And so I had to maintain this job while my personal life was in a complete shambles. Um, we were fighting all the time. He was lying. I was completely aware that he was and things were just a nightmare. And I was up to my eyeballs in debt. And there was one month in 2007 when I just said, you know, F this. This is not my life. Um, this is, it's not supposed to be this hard. Things are not supposed to be this hard. And I am not somebody who is going to allow myself to stay on this path. And so in the span of one month, may have even been two weeks. I quit my job. I started a new job. I kicked him out of the house. I moved out of the house. I um, separated all of our assets and our debt. I filed for divorce. I mean, I just like tore my entire life down. And I started a sales job um, that was like base plus commission just so that I could make enough money to exist on my own. Um, and completely like hit the reset button. And it's one of those things that, you know, people say that you shouldn't run away, you shouldn't give up, you shouldn't, you know, cut bait, but there comes a point and this was a breaking point where I was like, I'm sick of being a hyper negative person. I'm sick of, you know, perpetuating that negativity in my life. And, um, 
I started really putting a lot of energy into changing my situation financially and um, just health wise. And about two years later, this sounds silly, but I was listening to Lady Gaga talk about being positive and positivity and how to, you know, put that forward so that that's what comes back to you in life. And I decided consciously that I was going to change my outlook and reprogram my own brain to see everything in a positive way. Stop focusing on the negative and start start focusing solely on the positive aspects of everything. Like I've got a flat tire and I just spilled my coffee all over myself. Like if this is the worst thing that I have to deal with today, I am incredibly lucky. And um, I think that having my experience with um, living in South Africa also makes that infinitely easier for me personally to see, you know, how extremely lucky we are and how complaining about things and being hyper negative only brought more negativity to me. Um, and I really started investing a lot of my mental energy in things that propelled me forward. Um, examples of that would be like hobbies. Um, some people know I have a whole mess of chickens. So focusing on learning about the chickens and how to take care of them and what to do as far as like an automatic waterer and, you know, putting my energy into something like that rather than letting my, uh, my thoughts go to the negative and stressing about money or um, complaining about, you know, family issues or, um, you know, lack of, of what I want and driving that energy towards achieving those goals instead. Um, and that's where learning about social engineering came in about five years ago. I, um, <clears throat> I stumbled upon it at DEF CON. And we were just doing the, you know, it's our first year, show us all the villages, you know, walk through, um, which if you've ever tried to do that is a walk indeed. And so we were at, um, I think it was Paris and Bally's and we walked into SE village and all of the SECTF stuff was done for the year. And they were just talking about doing, I think it was like, um, mission impossible or SE impossible. And uh, I wasn't really clear on what was happening, but somebody said handcuffs and somebody else said, throw you in a glass booth. And I said, there's no effing way I'm doing that ever. That sounds scary. And uh, I talked to Michelle who was uh, still working um, at social dash engineer. And she, she told me a little bit about um, what the village was about. And I was, you know, kind of intrigued um, in that I thought, and if there's any village that I can really, you know, wrap my head around the, the finer details of, it's going to be social engineering because I spent all of this time um, as a kid experimenting with things like uh, crank phone calls and, um, you know, walking around college campuses, whenever we had fundraisers for like elementary school and we had to sell candy bars and stuff, we would buy candy bars for like, you know, 25, 30 cents a piece and then put those in the box with the ones we had to sell. And then we would just hit the college dorms and sell candy bars to all of the college kids that were within walking distance from us. I mean, these types of ideas they felt like they really fit into social engineering. Like this was something I could do. So I, the next year made it my mission to go back to SE village when the calls were happening and listen. And I managed to catch, I think half of them. And I stood in the back of the room um, on my feet all day. I did not take bathroom breaks. I did not go get food. I stayed because I knew the second I left, I would have to get back in that ridiculous line to get back in because um, at this particular DEF CON, the SE village was teeny. And there was literally a line just wrapped around the casino uh, conference center 
waiting to get in to try to get a glimpse of these calls. And I caught a few of them, one of which um, I am not sure the, the name of the SE, but they tried an Australian accent and they kind of got borderline close to doing a negative pretext. And I could tell that that was not the flavor of SE that I really wanted to be. Um, I, I had um, a couple kids at that point and I was really trying to drive this idea of positive influence and leadership and trust forward. Um, something that Robin Dreek says is that, you know, um, really good influence is not manipulation, it's leadership. And I'm paraphrasing, he says it much better, and you should definitely check out his book for that. Um, I like to buy things on Audible because then they tell me stories and I don't have to actually read them, but I get them all in their tone and, um, you know, the, the subtle nuances of what they're trying to convey come through a lot better when they read it to me versus me reading it to myself. Um, but this idea of leading and influence is something that really spoke to me. And that is what I focused on between the first year that I competed and the second was consuming every available ounce of information um, about trust, building rapport, leadership, um, uh, leaving people feeling better for having met you, as Chris had, Maggie says, um, all the time. And I, I have to give credit where credit is due. And that is something that I could not have done this transformation without the influence of these people and their leadership and the opportunities that were given to me by SE Village, um, their incredible staff, and specifically Chris, and um, just all of the amazing connections that have come out of DEF CON. It sounds pretty silly to say, but DEF CON has literally changed the, traje the trajectory of my entire life. Um, I've worked in competitive and market intelligence for a long time, and it's always been boring stuff nobody wants to do. And now <laughs> it's like OSIN, and it's so exciting. And so I love being able to share those things, and I love that other people are passionate about that. And connecting with people that are passionate about what I love only makes me uh, more excited to drive this forward. Um, I did not want to win this year. I really, really didn't. And um, competing in the social engineering capture the flag is some of the most exciting stuff I've ever done just because I was terrible at sports <laughs> and I am extremely competitive, but I also hate losing. <laughs> so I wanted to kind of get over that. And I also wanted to get over this, um, this social anxiety that I have and my fear of making phone calls just about silly things uh, was one of the reasons why I applied. And the first year that I applied for the social engineering capture the flag, um, which was the 2008 year, I didn't expect to be chosen. I sent a really terrible video. It was me standing in my like guest bedroom and just talking to the camera. And then you compare that to some of these professionally edited and and uh, really well put together videos, and it was a complete joke. I mean, Chris didn't even show it, thank you, Lord. He didn't show it in the village because of how rough it was. But he picked me, and I was like, oh, crap, I actually have to do this. <laughs> and I thought I was just going to be like, oh, yeah, I applied, but, you know, they didn't pick me. But I still look like a badass because I applied to do it. And then he selected me, and I went, oh, darn it. <laughs> so um, the first year was really about – I mean, the first year, I didn't even understand what the term red teamer meant. I mean, honest to God, I didn't know what that meant. When um, some people contacted me uh, through back channels to help me, I said, you know, I, I got picked to do this, and I just got this flood of help. Um, people like Snow um, and a few others I won't name and put on the spot, but some people reached out to me and were like, if you want to do this, I will help you. And I was like, heck yes. <laughs> I'm dying here. I don't know what to do. Uh, I've seen like, you know, five calls ever in my life. And, um, you know, at some point somebody called me a master manipulator, but I have no idea what I'm doing. And so, uh, 
I started learning about SE and with some of their guidance as far as like tools and how to conduct OSINT and um, <clears throat> where to look for this kind of flag and where to look for that kind of flag and, you know, specific Google dorks and things like that to use. I mean, those people were essential to me even, you know, having a chance at the first year. And uh, the first year I did pretty well. Um, once I got somebody on the phone, and I say this a lot, but um, it took over 12 number dials before we got an actual human to pick up the phone. And I think I burned like six or seven minutes of my 20 minute time just trying to get a human on the phone. And so by the time there was a person on the phone, my adrenaline and my nerves were just consuming me. And um, the, the gentleman that I got was completely outside of the pretext that I had come up with. And so it was really just like a Hail Mary. And I talked to him. And then when after he went to the malicious URL, quote unquote malicious, um, he started to get a little wonky. So I, you know, ended the call and then I called back and got reception and I got a couple of flags from her. And then I asked to be transferred to the woman that I had intended to speak to first, um, just on the off chance she was back from lunch or something like that. And I got her and I was like floored. So I had this whole pretext developed specifically for her and it was super detailed because, um, I knew her role and she was the only person in the company that had this um, connection to their charitable giving foundation. And my whole pretext was built on that. Um, and that's the point where I learned that very specific pretexts are a bad idea. <laughs> and, uh, but I got her on the phone. I think I had like six or eight minutes left and I went through most of what I needed to get through. And I knew she had kids. And at one point, I stumbled over something and I started to let my nerves get to me and get a little shaky. And she was like, what? And I was like, Oh, I'm so sorry. But I, um, I'm working from home today with a sick kid and, uh, I'm really sorry. I just am a little flustered. And she has a son who is on the spectrum and I knew that she would have empathy for me. And so when I played that card, I remember Chris Kirsch tweeted about it. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how am I even here with all these amazing people, um, let alone being mentioned by them? And um, at the all said and done, I went into the contest at DEF CON for the actual vishing in fifth place based on my report and my OSINT. And then I dropped into sixth after the, the points were calculated for the calls. And Whitney just destroyed me, <laughs> like, like destroyed. <laughs> and uh, I was just so in awe um, of her ability to keep her cool and um, just charm the living heck out of everyone she talked to. And so after that, you know, once I got over my insane jealousy, I, uh, I reached out to her and uh, we've become pretty good friends over the course of the last year. And she um, had a lot of influence along with Chris Kirsch and some of the other um, social engineers uh, who I've learned so much from, uh, Rachel Toback and everything that she shared uh, via the, you know, podcasts and interviews and things that she's done. Um, I stole a couple pretexts from her. She knows. She said it was okay. <laughs> and uh, and I used the, you know, the I'm coming on site to do a presentation uh, pretext because I had no idea what a pretext was, how to make one, what to do with it. And I couldn't find any information. I found a couple of books about pretexts, but they were all, um, hi, I'm Todd from IT and I need to reset your password. And I'm like, this is not going to work. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so over the course of the year between the first time I competed and the second time, um, I just dove headfirst into um, social engineering. Every book I could find, I studied um, actors. This is something that I would highly recommend um, if you are game. Uh, a lot of people say improv classes. I don't know if that would work for me, but you definitely be, need to be able to think on your toes, pivot, 
um, react to what they're saying as opposed to trying to script everything out. But learning from actors in general about their process and how they become a character, um, I learned a great deal from Brian Cranston's autobiography, um, A Life in Parts, I think it's called. It's on Audible. He's amazing. I love him. Uh, Brian, if you're listening to this, <laughs> but uh, he, he shared so much of his soul genuinely in his writing and he has his process i mean he talks about um how to really become the character and how you have to believe that you are that person you have to become them and this is something that is true of um, social engineering uh 100 um once you break that veil um, you're going to see it now when you watch TV. Um, like most recently, I was watching The Mandalorian, for example. And there's this scene where, this is a spoiler, so like skip over the next 10 seconds if you haven't watched The Mandalorian yet. But there's this scene where the little baby Yoda, who I know is not Yoda, is trying to heal somebody. And you can tell that everybody in the shot is not believing that the puppet is a real entity. You can tell everyone in the shot knows that's a puppet. and it is all over their faces and it completely busts the ability for you as an audience member to buy that this is real and that that is actually an organism that looks like a baby Yoda who is healing someone. You immediately are like, Oh, that's a puppet. And it's because the actors are not fully invested in who they are as their characters. Um, they're not fully immersed. And so that's something that you really have to do as a social engineer is, is become that person. If it's for five minutes or whatever, um, you cannot allow the veil of that character to be pierced by your target. Um, and the way that you do that is by being ridiculously well-prepared. And I know that most uh, professional vishers do not have the time to be exceptionally, you know, well-prepared with three months of OSINT or three weeks of OSINT and a month or so of prep before their calls happen. Um, but the person that I was when the target picked up the phone was that that was who I was. And I didn't even name her until the guy picked up the phone. And, <clears throat> But the, the person who I became, who worked at headquarters, who had been given a list of people that hadn't connected to the VPN and were supposed to have their laptops replaced, like I was her. And everything else around me just went black. And the booth was my entire reality. And uh, doing that cut the nerves out of the situation completely. And it also gave me the ability to convince the person that I was talking to that I was genuine, that they could trust me. And that, <clears throat> and the major difference between the first and the second year was um, that I went from doing an external vendor-based empathy pretext to a internal somewhat authority like I didn't claim to be anybody high up on IT's ladder or hierarchy um, I went into it with the idea that I was an assistant to somebody that was doing this and I just had to touch base and take a survey real quick and it worked like a charm now I will tell you that Chris Hadnagy has hinted that he may uh, make some changes to the contest next year so I'm anxious to see that but if you want help, let me know. Because the one thing that I said when I stepped off the stage at DEF CON closing ceremonies is I turned to Chris and said, I'm just sad that I can never do it again. <laughs> and it's true. Um, it was a blast. So I will definitely be in the village to watch and cheer everyone on. And um, again, probably the most exciting thing, you know, like aside from having my kids and stuff, it's ever happened to me. Um, <clears throat> so, um, I will say that, uh, and he stood up there with me on the stage, but I have to give an immense amount of credit to my husband, Ryan. He has been absolutely instrumental in helping me achieve my goals uh, by supporting me and um, 
really making a huge impact on my self-confidence and um, the ability to shift my life in this positive direction. Um, and uh, just encouraging me and pushing me and challenging me to go after this. Um, actually, the first year that I applied, he said, don't you want to watch them for one more year? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, he, he's been absolutely incredible. So I have to give credit where credit's due. And um, I've tried to look at everything. Uh, like I said, I used to be an extreme narcissist. It was all about me and what I did and what I accomplished and how I was cool because I did X, Y, Z. And so I've really tried to shift my entire mindset to being um, that one of humility. And that's genuine. I mean, this is not a manipulation tactic at all. Um, another thing that Robin Drake says is that manipulations will be found out um, no matter what. You lie, it's going to come out. You manipulate, it's going to come out. And you're going to leave a bad taste in someone's mouth for sure. Um, so that's not, not really the goal. Um, if you're in a professional um, situation where you're doing a pen test or um, like me or a consultant and you're training and um, doing stuff like that, you don't want to embarrass your clients because learning a lesson through embarrassment is not a nice uh, feeling. Um, so yeah, I guess that's somewhat of my origin story mashed into SECTF and um, Hopefully it was worth listening to. Um, and if anyone has any, anything that they want to learn more about, I'm an open book or you can just, you know, go find my, <laughs> my 10 OSINT challenges and just go dox me. But uh, uh, if you're interested in any, anything else regarding OSINT or SECTF or social engineering, I, I 100% believe in paying it forward and, um, helping others get into this field because a this field is growing like crazy. There is no shortage of jobs in uh, information security, and uh, everybody gets to play a role. And there's something everyone has the talent to do in this field. Um, by day, I work for a staffing company, and the need is humongous um, for this kind of talent. So if you are interested and you want help making a change in your own life like I am here for you and that's essentially my message that is an incredible heartwarming story Alith thank you for being so open and sharing and thank you for listening to the Layer 8 podcast if you want to learn more about us you can check us out at layer8conference.com or on Twitter at Lair8Conf, C-O-N-F. Thank you very much. Bye.